Welcome to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Here we create a window into the backstory of technology adoption in England's National Health Service. I'm your host, Victoria Betton. So today I'd like to welcome Sam Shah to the Digital Ecology Podcast. It's virtually impossible to operate in the field of digital health and not know Sam. We met back in maybe 2016 when Sam was at NHS England. He was the clinical lead for urgent and emergency care and director of learning and development and brought in FutureGov at the time to do some service design work, which I was really impressed with. I interviewed Sam for my book on my chapter on diversity in digital health, and he did an awesome job as master of ceremonies at the book launch for my digital ecology book some time back. So Sam is a dentist by trade, he's Chief Medical Strategy Officer for Newman, he's Senior Advisor to Freud's and he's a visiting lecturer at UCL and all sorts of other things besides. But most importantly, he's a fab person and he has a fabulous twist of mischief about him and it's the mischief maker that I'm interested in drawing out today. And we can have a conversation on the theme that we've agreed between us of complicated complexity and chaos. So that's our frame for today. So Sam, it's lovely to have you with me here today. Victoria, great to join you. And yeah, I gosh, I'd forgotten how many years it's been. It's almost been 10 years that we've sort of been in the same space and super nice to chat to you today, especially the last few times reflected on digital transformation, your book I've been recommending to lots of students to read (laughs) as they go on their digital health journey. And we're in such a changing, vastly changing environment across healthcare, not only in the UK, but globally. So great time to chat to you. And I will be using that snippet to basically make my audio CV, because you thankfully summarised in a way that I never could. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And Sam, when we came up with the title for the podcast today, what was it about that that appealed to you? I think that was a day when all three of those elements were going on, right? There was a bit of complexity, a bit of chaos and a lot of complication all at the same time. And I think that sort of sums up where we are, not only in the UK, but around the world when you think about digital change and transformation in health systems. We often treat digital transformation, digital projects as if they're complicated, but actually they're much more akin to complexity (laughs) and much more akin to chaos. So I'm always struck by, you know, we have our PRINCE2 methodology and we try and control these big projects and contain them, but actually we're working in complex adaptive systems. We're working with lots of different partner organisations, lots of different technology systems. So actually, I think we tend to kid ourselves that we're in a complicated space, whereas actually we're in something much more akin to chaos. Would that be your experience? I think all three of those components exist together and change to varying degrees, right? Some things we might work on have more of one index or more of one of those than the other. And we need to get everyone to recognise that all three of those things exist together. It's rare that it will just be complicated or complex. There'll always be some chaos. And I love the UK. I love England and how diverse the entire system is in terms of pieces of the puzzle. And that in itself also gives rise to a little bit of chaos and that you've got everything from small providers at one end, whether it's a small health tech startup or a primary care practice, a GP practice, a pharmacy, a dental practice, through to big providers like big hospitals or ambulance services. And a little bit like lots of different atoms floating around in whether it's a 
vaporous state or in a some sort of solid at a different rate we've got all of those features of a bit of chaos theory going on so so that's kind of what i like about the system but i have to recognize it is lots of different molecules a bit like different chemicals floating around and then we've got the way we mix them together so some recipes are really difficult so we've got a bit of complexity coming into the mix there or rather complication when we think about difficulty and then we've also got lots of different components and those components give rise to the complexity that goes alongside that complication so it's that sense of the different components of which there's lots of different players and different levels in the system whether it's regulators or state entities investors on one side coming down the chain different types of commissioner and provider different patient mixes so that gives us our different components and then we've got this issue of difficulty we've got everything from simple problems at one side all the way through to very very difficult problems and then all of these things moving around at different rates and paces everything from the problems during winter through to what might happen in the summer all year round. So that's kind of how I think of the system, all of those pieces mixed together. Yeah, that's a nice sort of blend of metaphors there as well. So thinking about that space with all those atoms bobbling around, as someone who's worked in the centre and is now out of the centre, so you've been there, you know what it's like to be in there, and now you're outside looking in but still connected to all of those people, what should be the role of the centre in that blend? People listening to this are probably going to really dislike my answer, but I think the state and the role of the centre will vary depending on the economics, the politics and social expectation, as well as the climate in which clinicians and the rest of the healthcare workforce are willing to operate. There are times when people may expect the centre to do more, to have more control, and in some cases reduce the complexity and reduce the number of complications. There'll be times when people want more control and expect that heterogeneity, at which point they may want the centre to have less control. So I look at the system as it is, as at today in the world of integrated care boards in England, health boards in Wales, health boards in Scotland, and then the entire state, as it were, in Northern Ireland. And I look at other parts of the world as well, and we compare what's happening. But at the current state, I'd almost say that we probably want the centre to do less and listen more. I think the role of the centre is one of a listening agency and to convene different parts of the system together. It's a convening power that it has. But often that convening power can get confused with a controlling power and one where we end up from it being convening and listening to sometimes dictating and determining. Now, the extent to which those two things happen and the oscillation between them, well, that will depend on the climate. Let's take something like as simple as data sharing. I think it's unlikely that we'll get to a space where citizens can really own and control their data without some convening power and probably putting some pieces in place to help make that happen. So that's where I can see something like the centre probably does have a role. But if we take the other side of that, like should there be one electronic health record system for the country or not, I think that's a more difficult problem to solve. And that's where actually the centre probably needs to have a role in convening and issuing some guidance, some standards. 
but actually allow those local areas to make those decisions for themselves, recognizing that it's unlikely there'll be a single solution or even a single set of requirements. Or on the other side, take apps and wearables. Some may say we should have the center making that decision once for the system, like a single app, like an NHS app. Others may say the NHS app is an aggregator where it's got some microservices that should be made available once and for all, but allow other innovators to build off those and create things that are more bespoke around different patient groups. So I go back to that. I think the center has a convening role and needs to step in where the market can't succeed or the market will fail, whether that's an internal market or an external one, and helping support the market overall, and then allow local organizations, local innovators, local teams to then do what is right for their patients in their area. I'm with you on that sort of convening, issuing guidance, direction where appropriate. But I wonder whether it's just down to responding to the will or the climate at that moment and how much it's dependent on individual leadership, about the macro political environment. Because one of the things I observe is how things change depending on what minister happens to be responsible for the health and care portfolio and their particular peccadilloes or aspirations or the legacy they want to leave, for example. So how much is it determined by who happens to be in power either politically or at the top of NHS England, for example? Well, I certainly think over the last five to 10 years, we've certainly seen uh, how that influence can spread through the system based on whether there's a single minister in charge or a particular set of experiences from the leaders of the health system. And I think over the last sort of best part of the last 20 years, I've seen all versions of that exist. And a lot of what we see in the NHS in England is certainly driven by individual personalities. And one of the things that I think as senior leaders in the system, we want senior leaders and those of us who have been in these positions to, to remember, is we don't really want hippo to exist which is the sort of highest paid person of importance. We don't want their view to be the view that gets put out there. It has to be one that is going back to that listening piece. But we've seen this time and time again, where if it's ministerial, they either have a particular agenda they want to get in place. And I understand that there'll be manifesto commitments and mandate commitments. They'll often have people they want to bring in that comes with a certain flavor and set of experiences. And both of those things will tend to either work because there's good relationships or they'll work because there's buy-in from the system to make them work and sometimes that social capital political will will be high and other times it won't and one thing we've certainly seen in the last few years is where the change of the personality at the top changes the entire strategy so we do need a little bit of decoupling from what is a long-term strategy to deliver change, both across health and care, along with digital transformation, from that political personality. And that's really hard because the, the strategies rarely stay in, in place. So where we see it go wrong is where that political change or leadership change results in a complete change of strategy or reprioritization of a portfolio. And that leads to disruption of that portfolio and often chaos ensues. We get back to that chaos and we get back to that chaos because suddenly everyone is going in a different direction to the one they agreed to without reassessing, well, what does that mean downstream through a system? 
And frequently when we see that rapid change, there's almost zero delivery or zero useful delivery that follows. So sadly at the moment, the strategy of our health system and digital transformation is very tied to political individuals and often politicians and sometimes the leadership of the system. And going back to where we should divest and devolve that decision-making, perhaps we still need a long-term commitment to a strategy and not just another plan, but an actual strategy that's in place that's funded and resourced and then allow the delivery to take place a level one step removed from the political change. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were describing that issue of policy or strategy being tied to an individual, I was wondering with the departure of Tim Ferriss from NHS England as Director of Transformation, what that might mean in terms of convergence. So for people who are listening who aren't aware, there was a real sort of emphasis on converging across regions, maybe having the same electronic patient record from the same supplier, rather than a focus on standards and interoperability between separate systems. And I just wonder whether you think there's a shift happening there or whether that sort of approach of convergence will continue. I can really understand, if I take a step back, as to why a national leader such as Tim or anyone else may have had that view that convergence may have been a good thing. It might have come from frustration of change not happening or thinking about how to use a small amount of resource. The downside of a strategy like that is around market dominance. You can end up with a single player that becomes dominant in the market and then the consumers and users get the least benefit. So I can suspect that now there's again another shift and a change at the top and there is also a lack of resource. I wouldn't be surprised if the convergence strategy takes a different direction and maybe it will still be called the same thing or might be called something else. But I'd be very surprised if we end up with a single supplier or a smaller number of suppliers of anything in a market that's as big as the NHS. And we see this at the moment. If you'd asked me two or three years ago, would the Competitions and Markets Authority ever have stepped in to anything in the health service? I'd have said no. Certainly for my dealings when I was in the system, They were very reluctant to get involved with anything health or NHS connected, whether directly or step removed. If we look at what's happening now, they're examining certain areas of health system supply. In fact, even the technical supply, they're looking at the mergers of some organizations. They're looking at some of the existing suppliers of systems, and they're even making or giving perspectives on some of the players in the market and their degree or perceptions around dominance. This is interesting because I think it directly plays to this question around convergence. And so I think the changing of the guard in NHS England at the moment probably means that the convergence strategy goes away or changes direction. Less likely that there'll be a small number or a single supplier and more likely that we'll see an expectation that suppliers will be expected to work together but perhaps not such a restriction on the number or the volume. That's really interesting. And it leads me to sort of think about the extent to which the digital health marketplace, when you're thinking about suppliers of digital product software, the extent to which is a thriving marketplace and sad marketplace. What's your sense as someone that now works in the private sector as well as with public sector organisations? Have we got a thriving marketplace? I think we have all of the enthusiasm and goodwill towards a thriving marketplace. 
But in reality, I think it's a very sad state of affairs. And I might start off with a more controversial topic on that thriving marketplace. I've seen a lot of both political and sector uh, commentary around what's happened with Babylon GP at hand as an example of that marketplace. And I'm someone that's seen this from its start to where it is as at today. So nothing I'm saying is secret or not in the public domain. But basically, we've seen a situation where digital primary care has tried to exist as one part of the market. And a good example of that was Babylon GP at hand. They came into the space to try and deliver a certain outcome based on the circumstances at the time. Some people might like it. Some people might not. But whatever people's views on it are, is it try to set up, solve a set of problems for the population in a certain way at a moment in time. And what we've seen is that in that scenario, even with all the goodwill that may have existed at the time and the way in which digital primary care was growing, we've seen a situation where ultimately the funding that has to go in far exceeds the amount of funding that the state can make available. So you're then reliant on investment from outside. And that's a good example of the situation that Babylon and many others find themselves in, whether that's Livy, whether that's Babylon, whether that's any of the other digital health providers there. They're all reliant on investment from outside in order to thrive, to exist in the UK marketplace of the NHS. So there's loads of support for those enthusiastic digital health companies. And there's lots of enthusiasm from NHS organisations, whether it's the new health innovation networks, formerly known as NHSNs, whether it's from NHS England and innovation programmes or the Entrepreneurs Programme, or even the digital transformation portfolio previously sort of known under different names, including NHSX. There's always enthusiasm for it. But the reality is the mechanism of coming to market and raising investment is really difficult and can be quite hard for many individuals. Then we've got the entire process of how those digital health companies have to jump through the regulatory barriers, producing evidence to a varying nature. And then there's actually coming to market and trying to sell to a bit of the NHS somewhere, whether it's getting a pilot, getting some grant funding, getting some innovation funding, going to organization of trust, a commissioning organization, practice, or even trying to get onto a library of some form, getting patients on board. That's all really difficult. So when we take those different components, so we've got back to complexity again. First of all, the landscape is really complex with all the components. Then we've got the complicated nature of it in terms of the difficulty of actually getting to the stage where there's a contract. And even when there's a contract in place, I was talking to a startup last week that's really struggling with this. They've got a contract in place signed through a framework agreement. So it agrees how much money they should get paid. They've done the work for this part of the NHS. So they've done the work and delivered the work that they had agreed to do. They have varied what they agreed to do and done the extra things that were asked and with the promise of extra money. Now, a year and a half later, trying to get paid is almost impossible for them. If that startup does not get paid in the next week or two, they could collapse and fold. But yet they've got a contract, they've been promised, but they can't afford the best lawyers and they can't afford the best advisors to come and negotiate with the NHS to get paid. And it just really goes to show that however much enthusiasm there is in this thriving and buoyant market of lots of startups every single day, 
the reality is it's really difficult to do business with a system like the NHS, especially one across all four nations, but in England. So do I think it's sad? Sadly, I do. I do think it's quite sad. And the players that temporarily succeed are those that can raise probably the most money to get the most support and buy the most amount of, if you like, social capital and political will. That doesn't necessarily mean the best solutions are going to come to market. And we are left with a sad state of affairs. You've said it perfectly. And I guess you focused on that sort of contracting, getting to market, raising investment and the challenge even then of getting paid. I just wonder what your thoughts are about implementation. So I'm always struck by getting that contract in place, even if you do get paid, is only the start of the story. Because if you don't redesign that clinical workflow, and pretty much every clinical workflow is different from service to service and trust to trust, unless you unless you properly do the transformation piece, the implementation, the changing people's behaviours, the pathways and so on, then all you're going to do is shove a bit of technology on top of everything else. And I've been working in a trust recently doing some discovery where even though they have a well-established electronic patient record, they're doubling up on all their paper processes. So none of the benefits are being realised because they don't trust the system. So they write everything on paper and then they upload to the electronic patient record afterwards. So just talk to me a bit about that implementation piece in a complex environment. I'm going to take us back to something that you started off with in our discussion, and that's really around the sort of user-centered design piece. And implementations can succeed or fail for many reasons. And if they don't have a little bit of friction, I'd be very surprised. But if we don't do the work at the beginning, the real research around the problem that we're trying to solve, the user research around the likely users and what their expectations are, right down to whether they're going to actually go through a change process and then the mindset and what help do they need. And then the true work around the design of what we might need in a new system, and we don't start off there. The chances are any implementation that is not backed by that approach is probably going to fail. Or if it doesn't fail, it will be an artificial success. And I think through some of the projects and programs I've seen over time that on the one side have been hailed a success. I'll give you one in particular. I remember the whole piece around e-referral in the NHS almost being hailed a success as to the number of organisations that allegedly gone paperless. And then you scrape below and then you realise, well, actually, the implementation hasn't really worked because what you've then got is a series of workarounds on top of a series of workarounds. What has happened, a little bit like your EPR description there, where people have put in spreadsheets in between to hold data as a workaround for the system that doesn't work. They've hired people to transcribe from one system to another. They put an extra person in place to print off the referrals and take them to the room next door to upload them into the system that only one person can use. They've got another system in place to receive the things that are being sent out of a system to upload them elsewhere into a different system to create a task workflow. And then you start to realize that on the one side, this project may have been hailed a success. Then you scrape underneath that. Well, why was it? Well, it was because organizations were paid to demonstrate a particular output or process. So artificially, it looks like success. The reality is it doesn't work for users. It adds complexity to the user's lives. It's complicated because of the difficulty, the friction that is in place for all range of users, not just the patient. And then we also then have a problem where we've added 
cost to systems. So when I think about implementation, especially in somewhere like the health service, we sometimes fail to recognize then the environment we're actually implementing into, and we haven't done the work before or the support after. And very rarely do we invest in business change. So very recently, a great example was where just England in London decided that it was going to use a particular digital referral system for all NHS dental services in London. And they decided to pilot it and they're going to implement it. There wasn't any user research, any discovery, any service design. It simply lift and shift from the GP system onto the dental system. And of course, the problem is they might tick a box to say that they've implemented it because they put it out there and it's a user's fault. Why are the users not using it? Well, the users aren't using it because it doesn't meet any user needs or user requirements. It's a different system, so it doesn't integrate. It doesn't have any of the same forms or features. It doesn't meet the triage requirements. It doesn't even work for the providers involved. And it doesn't recognize the provider landscape that actually dentistry referrals involve both independent sector and the NHS all going to the same endpoints. And of course, none of these things were considered when building or designing this type of approach. And so on the one side, NHS England, London Region would have ticked a box. They've implemented something. On the other side, it'll be a vanity project because there won't be any users properly using it. And over time, we'll see dropout. And we've seen this before with other systems. This isn't unique. I've seen this with systems around email across the NHS, where there have been metrics and measures on number of users for NHS mail. I've seen it around, and even to an extent, the NHS app could be argued that it's an example where there was a number of users. There are. They all used it for the COVID vaccine passport. But now if we don't make the NHS app useful for the end user and provide something that they're actually going to want to use and need to use, again, we'll see a technical solution without thinking through the true problem that needs solving. And the true problem might actually be, well, if we don't put the investment resource into primary care for appointments and we don't make it easier for primary care practices to make those appointments available, then they're not going to make the appointments available, in which case the population won't have appointments they can book. So you can put all the investment into the tech, but it's pointless unless we solve the underlying set of problems and understand all sets of users and their needs. And not defer to the hippo in the room, as you said earlier. So we started talking a bit about service design, discovery, understanding the problem you're trying to solve before you look at what the solution might be. When you were at NHS England, or was it X, brought in FutureGov to look at urgent emergency care, just talk to me about that experience of working with a service design agency and what you learned from that experience and what went well or anything that you might do differently if you were doing it again. Well, first of all, I was really lucky to be able to work with not only FutureGov, but also the internal team that we had as well. And we had a fantastic internal team in the NHS. And one of the things that was great about that team was it was a cross-functional team. And when I mean cross-functional, it's one of the first teams between NHS England and NHS Digital to sit together, work together, to have no boundaries between the team long before the existence of even NHSX. And that was pretty amazing. We worked in a way where people worked in the open. And this came about because of a number of people in that team that brought their own culture and working style into the team. And I must say, someone that many people will know, but Chris Fleming was one of those people. He'd come from other parts of government, having worked with government digital services and brought a culture and philosophy to the team and him and many others as well, Matt Stibbs. And we had lots of other people that were in in that team as well. Debbie Floyd, 
we had Radhika Rad uh, Rangaraju, uh, my colleague Jackie uh, Enieski, and lots of other fantastic people from within the NHS that brought a culture and a way of working which was about people working in openness, learning, and ongoing learning. So that was the first thing that I'd have to say, that foundation. And they were really the advocates for taking this service design, user-centered design approach and really understanding the problem. And they were the ones that persuaded me that actually we need to bring in an external agency to come and support us with this piece that will offer one, complete independence, but also help teach and support our internal teams on how to continue with this approach. So we went out to market with a very fair and open process. And I have to say that the team that went through this were sincerely and genuinely very open about getting the best talent in there. And the approach they took to procurement wasn't a traditional NHS approach. They very much did a full sort of market engagement and found a great team. And working with the future Gov team when they were eventually selected was phenomenal. They had examples from other sectors that they could share of projects they'd done, whether it's across government, across other sectors, across other industries. And really their interest was around understanding the range of users. And so they went out there across urgent emergency care, across the system, with everyone from out-of-hours providers, out-of-hours dental providers, pharmacies that are working in the urgent care setting, working with urgent emergency care departments, with urgent care teams, with one-on-one -on -one settings, ambulance providers, working with all of those to really understand the different groups of users, their user journey, and the different personas at play. And then they went into a depth around the clinical need, the emotional need, and the practical need for those users. And as they went through this project, they really got down to what is the underlying set of problems that patients need solving. And yes, the end point might be urgent emergency care, but what is it that was causing patients to present in the system? And so when they presented their recommendations and findings, they were very comprehensive. And you could really get a sense that they had really understood the users on this journey at different parts of the system and in different places in the country. And I certainly learned a lot from not only what was my team and my peers, but also from that external team. And what I really took away from it was that we can't really look at it around a single component or just the complexity in the system. But we also need to get a level below that and think about the different components and the impact of different parts of the system. So one of the things that we really learned from that was the close interaction between primary care and urgent care. And they go hand in hand. And actually investment in primary care is really an investment in urgent care. The nature by which ambulance service and online services and 111 work together needed some support in order to get the best for the patient the way in which patients, when they present to emergency care settings, like an emergency department, it's more than just the clinical need. The patients are there because they've paid for their parking, they've paid for their train ticket. So simply turning away at the front door isn't going to solve the problem. In fact, it's almost too late to solve the problem at that stage. Don't try and solve the problem at that stage. At that stage, treat the person in front of you and understand their emotional and practical need as well as their clinical need. And so as we're designing systems, this whole thing about trying to triage people the moment they've got through the doors of A&E is probably not the right point to try and solve that problem of turning away to another part of the system. Actually, at that point, solve the person's needs, deal with the other problems upstream, but not at that moment in time. 
it's all of those things that we need to really recognize. So working with those service designers from FutureGov provided a different lens through which we need to view the system. And I very much hope that, that work isn't wasted. We know that the annual cycle of winter pressures comes every year and it's ongoing now. We know the focus on ambulances, urgency care continuously happens. And certainly the entire time from 2012 all the way through to 2019, when I was involved in the system at various points, I go back to the work from FutureGov, which is still available. They published all their work in the open, that openness. It's there for current and future leaders to learn from that work. And I'd be very surprised if the learning, the recommendations, the outputs have changed at all. In fact, I think they're probably just as relevant today as they were three years ago. Well, I'm doing some work on the emergency pathway at the moment, and I can tell you all of those points you raise sound very familiar. That's great for it to be out in the public domain. And actually, if it is publicly funded research, discovery, then it's only right that it is made public so that other parts of the service can benefit from it. Sam, listen, we're almost out of time. I wonder whether, thinking about this complex and complicated system that we're operating in and with the edge of chaos always around us, what are the small things that you think could change in the system that would have a, a significant impact on improving and maybe reducing some of that complexity easier for all parts of the system to work together? I, well, I'd be really surprised if the complexity ever really reduces. And I suspect what will happen is it will stay in different forms. It will be our appreciation to understand it far better. And the way we communicate what it is, I think, is what will improve. And I almost say we need to embrace it. We need to recognise that it exists, embrace it, and make it part of the way in which we solve problems, accepting that we'll never really solve for complexity. But what we will do with each iteration is make a better set of solutions that continue to fit. And think of this like a balloon or an ecosystem or a galaxy. There'll be different pieces that will keep moving. And so our solutions need to constantly evolve. That means we need to keep on thinking about ongoing user research, ongoing discovery. So even when we implement, accept that the system and the ecosystem will respond in its own complexity to whatever we implement. So keep on doing some research so we know how to adjust our system as we go along and accept that complexity is here to stay. Let's embrace it and make it part of our problem solving approach. So embrace complexity, take a systems thinking approach, working with all those different components of the system and roll with it rather than try and control it. I think those are your key messages, Sam. They are my messages and a little bit of chaos won't do us any harm. And we just have to accept that that sort of chaos is part of the very nature of a system as gigantic as the NHS. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope everyone's coped with my slightly low, coldy voice. And yeah, really appreciate your time, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I have really enjoyed our discussion today. And I will be continuing to refer back to chaos, complexity and complicated systems. Thank you for listening to the Digital Ecology Podcast. Please like, subscribe and review via the usual channels. My book Towards a Digital Health Ecology is available via Amazon and you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Medium at Victoria Betton.